Massive thank you as always to our top tier patrons, Sarah Turner. It's Not Just In Your Head is hosted by psychotherapist Dr. Harriet Fraud, substance use disorder counsellor Ekoi Hero, and myself, the editor and producer Liam Tate. This podcast is entirely funded by listeners, and as the famous meme states, we are critiquing capitalism because we are forced to participate in it in order to survive. So, if you can afford to give, then your contribution will ensure that we can keep making the show. However, if you can't, then please just leave a review on your podcast platform of choice, tell your friends about us, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, or YouTube. Massive thank you as always to L for organizing our monthly reading groups and episode discussions, which you, dear listener, can join in too. Just head over to our Eventbrite page and the link is in the show notes. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. My name is Kristen Godsey. I am a professor of Russian and East European studies and a member of the graduate group of anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and I have been teaching about various types of utopian experiments starting, gosh, sometime in the late 90s. So for over 20, almost 25 years. And this book is really a response to the readers and the feedback that I got in response to my earlier book, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence, which initially came out in 2018 and then weirdly exploded in a way that I wasn't expecting. It's now got 15 foreign language translations and it's been the topic of a lot of various discussions and I've been traveling around the world and giving lectures. And in response to those lectures, I came to see that people are very much open-minded when it comes to critiques of capitalism and when it comes to critiques of patriarchy, when it comes to the critiques of the way those two things interact with each other to influence our lives and inform and underpin structural forms of discrimination. But when you turn around and actually start to suggest alternatives, when you start to say, hey, what if we do things this way or what if we did things that way? People get really antsy and they seem to have a kind of built-in aversion to any sort of solution that might be considered utopian or somehow beyond the regular political types of solutions that we have in society. So Everyday Utopia really came out of a moment when I was thinking, what if we could expand our imaginations and really think outside the box in ways that are really far outside of the mainstream, looking historically at different societies that have done things differently. And first of all, recognize that this would be a valuable exercise in trying to understand how we might better organize our private lives for the challenges that we face in the 21st century. But secondly, to really understand that there have been a certain sort of set of prescriptions that have been around for about 2,500 years and have instantiated themselves cross-culturally in really different types of places. And so this is my attempt to synthesize a big, long intellectual history of utopian visions for the private sphere. One of the things that impressed me was that I realized in my long education, I have a doctorate, a postdoc, the only 
utopias that were ever mentioned were in high school, and they all turned dystopic. Brave New World, Animal Farm, 1984. Why do you think, A, that people are so hesitant to think of alternatives? And I'm a therapist, even therapists who see family disaster every day are hesitant to think of an alternative. Why? Yeah. Uh, So I think that's a question I really grappled with in the book. And there are a couple of parts to the answer. I think the first part of the answer is what is called in the psychological literature status quo bias, which is that people really don't like to feel regret. Regret and shame are very powerful emotions. And it turns out that if something bad happens as a result of an action that we took, something that we actually agentically did in our lives, we feel much more regret and shame about a bad outcome than we do about a bad outcome that comes from our inaction, from not doing anything. So in the first case, I think that people stay in terrible relationships, people remain in abusive family situations or in uncomfortable workplaces or all sorts of personal circumstances because they're afraid to make a decision to change things because if they make a decision to change things and it works out worse than the status quo, they will feel much more regret and shame than they would if they just held the line and stuck it out. And even if things continue to be bad, they can't be blamed for an action that they took for which they later feel regret. So I think that status quo bias plays a big part of this. But the second part of the answer is very specifically to your recollections of high school and reading books like Brave New World or 1984 or Animal Farm. These days, younger children read a book called The Giver, which is similarly an attempt to build a utopian society that devolves into dystopia. And I think at the root of all these books is a fear of being unloved and alone. And even though the way that society works may be dysfunctional, maybe people are incredibly unhappy Maybe families are breaking down. Maybe we have an opioid crisis. Maybe we have massive amounts of anxiety and depression and basic sort of mental health issues writ large, especially among our younger. Again, if we try to change things, if we mess with some of these supposedly venerable institutions like the family, We have been taught, particularly in the 20th century, that any attempt to shake things up, any attempt to do things differently will end up in us feeling unloved and alone. And that is a really deep deep and profound fear. And so I think it takes a lot of convincing and it takes a lot of kind of self-knowledge and understanding in order to overcome that anxiety around imagining alternative futures for our private lives. And yet what I think of is since the majority of marriages end in divorce and most kids, at least three quarters, don't grow up with their biological original parents and children's lives are quite bad these days. The biggest cause of child homicide is guns, but the second is abuse and neglect by families. You can't pick up the Daily News or another tabloid-type paper without reading every week about another murdered kid, that people would maybe take the risk and think differently. And yet, I guess there is a kind of nobility that people ascribe to managing under terrible circumstances that isn't described to people courageously trying to make an alternative. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point, right? This sort of grin and bear it, this sort of soldier on in the case of suffering. What is it the British saying? Keep calm and carry on. I do think that particularly when it comes to our family lives, there's a kind of traditional 
mythology around family that requires us to accept much higher levels of unpleasantness, unhappiness, and potentially abuse than we would be willing to, or that would societally be sanctioned from our friends or colleagues or comrades. So there's this sort of sacrosanct idea of the family, of these consanguineous, these blood-related ties that allow for us to somehow put aside what we see as the deficiencies of this institution. And one of the things that I discuss in the book is the ways in which the family forms that have come down to us, which are very specific family forms that kind of originate in classical Greece and Rome and then get picked up by the Catholic Church and then spread through colonialism and imperialism so that they've become hegemonic in the present day, that these are family forms that are very specific to certain societies and maintaining certain levels of inequality and facilitating the intergenerational transfer of wealth and privilege. But they have come down to us as somehow natural. We get this idea that monogamy or the nuclear family is like a biological evolutionary inevitability, but it's not. It's very clearly a social construct. And we have many examples throughout anthropology and evolutionary biology and psychology and history of different ways of organizing the family and not only of organizing the family, but of separating out our mating practices, our romantic attachments from our child-rearing attachments, which I think is something that you were just saying, Harriet, which is that there's a way in which in our contemporary societies, we have decided that the romantic couple, the ideal heterosexual monogamous marriage is the appropriate container for child-rearing. And yet we know that particularly romantic relationships can be unstable. And when they break apart, as they often do, when attraction fades or people change or find other interests or grow apart for whatever reasons, it's the children who are the collateral damage in those Mm. fragile relationships. And so one of the things that I really want to do in the book is to say, how could we organize the way that we raise our children, raise the next generation differently so that there would be less precarity associated with the breakdown of a romantic relationship among a couple. Your book is totally compelling for me, I must say. And it's interesting to me that people are walking with their feet. The most prevalent development of married couples is deciding not to have children. The majority of American women are single and by choice. 76 percent of divorces are initiated by women now so that people are actually showing dissatisfaction with the status quo without affirming alternatives. How do you see that? Do you see it as a development towards or what? Because it's obvious that people, particularly women, are dissatisfied since the majority of American women are single for the first time in our history. We see this in places like Japan, where many women are intentionally choosing to remain single, very patriarchal society. We also see this in South Korea with the Bihon movement. These are women who basically swear no sex, no relationships, no marriage, no babies. And it's become a real problem because, as I'm sure, both of these societies have declining birth rates. So there's a kind of a two-part answer, again, to this this question. So on the one hand, I want to say... I think throughout history, there may have been women who, for one reason or the other, were either asexual, not attracted to anyone of any gender. You may have people who, for one reason or the other, decided to choose chastity or celibacy. And we know in the Middle Ages, obviously, there were lots of nuns. So there may be many among the population of contemporary women that we're speaking about who are just happier in platonic relationships with friends and foregoing romantic attachments. And those options weren't available to them in an earlier period of time because they could not economically support themselves without a father or a husband or a son contributing to their livelihoods. And so I think on the one hand, this may be the result of women who may otherwise have not had the choice to remain single, finally being able to operationalize that choice in their own lives. And I think that's a good thing. 
But the second part is that there are many women, I think, who just feel that the nuclear family with the biparental care model, where a primarily heterosexual couple lives together in a single family home where they provide biparental care for their own biological or adopted children surrounded by their own private stuff. This is a model that is really out of date with the way that we live our lives and the way that many people want to live their lives in the future. And so I absolutely agree with you. I think that falling birth rates and falling marriage rates and this sort of resistance to forming long-term romantic attachments with people comes out of this broader context of capitalist precarity. The fact that our economies are very unstable, the fact that people's livelihoods are always at risk, the fact that we don't have national, any form of universal health insurance. There are all sorts of ways in which people are making decisions to allocate their scarce resources of time and attention and affection differently because of the pressures that our society is putting on families. So I think that the family as a model that we have is out of date. I think that we could do it differently um, and that what a lot of young people particularly even birth strikers, people who are saying that they don't want to have children because of the climate crisis and so on, that they're just waiting for a different model of family to come along. And that was why I thought it was so important to say, hey, guess what? Not only are there different models of the family that we could think about in the future, but it turns out that we have almost 2,500 years of radical utopian experiments to learn from about how we might form our families differently. I also think that two huge developments have affected American women, intellectual developments, as well as, of course, birth control, and until they try to take it totally, abortion. But there is, one of them is the feminist movement has, I think, reached women everywhere, even women who don't consider themselves feminists. And the other is the psychoanalytic awareness in the United States has increased. And that's something that has been feminized in many ways. Women are deeply affected by these things, and particularly blue-collar men are not. And so that there's a, an, a real lack of synchronicity here. Plus that there, the economic conditions of existence for the old family model are over. And so that just doesn't make sense anymore. I think of two jokes that really bring it home. There was a men's joke in the early 60s. I got a handy little thing called a wife. You screw it on the bed. She does all the housework, right? Woman's equivalent was men are like linoleum. You walk, you could walk on them for 20 years and they still are there, right? Because that was the deal and it isn't anymore. You're not supporting and women aren't going to eagerly have a second shift when they get on from work. You make the point that hypergamy, if that's the right way you say it. Yes, hypergamy, um, that's right. Yeah, there's various characters on the right, Jordan Peterson, for example, who take that concept of a hierarchy of desirable mates or something like that and naturalize it and remove it of, to some degree, politics or economics, right? Like you make the great point, if you're going to remove social safety nets, then this thing is maybe going to occur. Because if you want some kind of future, if you want kids or whatever, and you want some sort of, some element of security, suddenly you maybe are thinking in a particular kind of way or trying to figure out what the best chances of a good quality of life might be in the future. But like I said, the Jordan Petersons of the world just say that that's just a basic fact that has no sort of underlying conditions. It's just the way things are. And he's also one of these characters who says, don't mess with things. <laughs> the structure is great. And if you're going to do things, just do it really slowly. And I guess there's some truth to that idea of that there's always unintended consequences for things. But the idea that like somehow this is the best It's insulting in all kinds of different ways. But I really enjoyed your point about like blue sky thinking is allowed. It's a kind of a vomit inducing term anyway, but it's allowed in the sort of corporate advertising marketing space for products and consumables, but it's not allowed 
for thinking of better ways of existing on the planet together. We have to just accept what exists. Exactly. And the whole idea of move fast and break things, right? This sort of Facebook motto of let's just do things. Let's just disrupt the economy. Let's just disrupt the polity. Let's just disrupt society so that we can make a lot of money. But the the flip side of that is like, why don't we radically shake up the family so that people will be happier so that we can increase human flourishing and human thriving and live more sustainably on the planet and tackle issues like inequality and the climate crisis. It's really so hypocritical of these leaders and corporations or in academia and industry who talk about the value of this quote unquote blue sky thinking, right? This idea that you can push the boundaries of our imagination to figure out how to geoengineer our way out of the climate crisis or radically extend life so that you have human immortality. There are literally people who are trying to achieve this. But if I say, hey, maybe we should have three or four parents in a family rather than just two, then it's, oh no, that's just the slippery slope to the gulag, right? That's going to end in this (laughs) totally dystopian nightmare. So there is a way in which the people like Jordan Peterson really are trying to naturalize a set of social relationships that are very much contingent on our political and economic circumstances. My earlier work really talked about when you take economic considerations, when you take transactionalization out of human relationships, it turns out that women are less likely to be hypergamous. They're more likely to choose their partners on the basis of love and attraction and mutual affection and mutual interests. But once you put people in a marriage market or a dating market, this is the whole idea of sexual economics theory. Once you put people in a competitive environment where their ability to pay their bills and pay their rent and have access to healthcare in the United States is predicated on having a partner that can provide for you, of course, you're going to try to choose a partner who's more stable and who's better able to provision not only you, but the but any potential offspring. But that is a direct result of the economic circumstances, not of some weird natural thing, because if it was natural, then we wouldn't see different sorts of family arrangements in different sorts of climactic or geographic or economic conditions. For instance, in the Himalayas, there are societies that are polyandrous, which means one woman has multiple husbands. And in those circumstances, polyandry is limiting, it's a natural form of birth control. It's limiting population growth because those are very harsh environments where resources are scarce and where the natural environment cannot sustain a large human population. So you have a very different family form that evolves. In certain Amazonian indigenous peoples, among those peoples, you have something called partible paternity, which is a similar sort of form of polyandry, where a woman will give birth to a child, which is the paternity is attributed to two or more men. And in those cases, in societies where male mortality is higher due to certain kinds of conflict, that means that the child will have a sort of a surplus father should one or more of the fathers be lost. So like Jordan Peterson's view of the way the world works is a very narrow view of late capitalism in the developed global north. But he tries to universalize that and then even worse, try to create whatever 12 rules for life to clean your room and make your bed or whatever it is that you're supposed to be doing in order to be a a successful man. But I think that we are at a moment where the particular form of the family as it has evolved in the global north is a form of the family, as I said earlier, that facilitates the intergenerational transfer of wealth and privilege from fathers to their supposedly legitimate sons. And that is part of how capitalism, it's part of how patriarchy reproduces itself. But it's also the product of a worldview that looks at the earth and its natural resources as abundant and ever-giving. And 
and extractive and exploitative. And so if we are going to think about human life in the future in a climate that is radically changing, we have to go back to the drawing board and think about how the way we arrange our private lives can allow us to live more sustainably and in harmony with nature while also dealing with massive amounts of inequality, extreme crises of mental health, and I think most importantly, this epidemic of loneliness and despair that many people are feeling across the global north. All of those issues can be dealt with by rethinking the way we organize our domestic lives. I was thinking that if under capitalism, the point is to make money off of other people's labor and to see them as vehicles for yourself, and your own aggrandizement, which does transfer, money gets in the way, then it's very hard to get across to people. And I think of scenes in the playground where kids are playing and one of them has a little plastic bucket with a pail and shovel and the other one has a nice truck and they're cooperating, pouring sand into the little dump truck and then dumping it. And at the end, the kid with the pail and shovel says, I'll give you my pail and shovel. And the kid with the truck says, I'll give you my truck. And the, the kid with the truck's mother says, are you kidding? That cost $17.95. That pail <laughs> is worth less than $5. What are you doing, kid? So that whole idea of sharing and caring is mitigated by the pressures of money and accumulation which are huge in the United States as people live in such precarity and scarcity. And you would think that a platform of saving money and saving life and saving labor by living together would be appealing. But no one has it. No one has a strong socialist program that's viable as an alternative in the United States. But nobody has... That on the agenda, which is the most interesting of all. There's actually a whole topic thread we could go down there. I'm just wondering about... So a couple of episodes ago, we recorded this episode. Sky had written a book, Red Enlightenment, which was about considering spirituality on the left, as it were, and why it's important. And then one of the key insights that came out of that was this idea of that you can't just ever get rid of a framework for understanding the world. It always has to be replaced by something else. It's interesting that there's so much pushback in your experience in suggesting other things and people freak out because you are trying to offer a replacement to something, even if this, you know, yeah. the sort of status quo is fundamentally broken. So you, the key thing here is ultimately, at least from my perspective, it's about persuasion, right? Like the thing that's always disturbing about people you don't agree with is how often persuasive they can be. Jordan Peterson has millions of people following him. Mm. So he's just a persuasive person, even if what he's saying doesn't, yeah, he's saying it like it's the truth, <laughs> capital yeah. T truth. And as you illustrated, like he's reached this conclusion based on a whole bunch of underlying things that he's just maybe taken for granted. But that's part of the fight. And maybe it's always part of the fight is like who has the most persuasive arguments. And I really liked your the intro in your book where you're talking about the power of fiction to yes. help you maybe yeah. be persuaded by alternative things. I don't know if a, you wanted to talk about your experiences growing up and or just to talk on 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 that idea of the blue sky thinking that happens in fiction often creates the template for what happens next in the future right yeah no absolutely i think that fiction and particularly science fiction right the futurism as a genre of writing and of thinking and this can be literature this can be television this can be film there's a way in which allowing ourselves to play with alternative ideas. In the book, I talk a lot about Star Trek as a mm. kind of utopian vision that started in 1966. It just decided in the middle of the Cold War 
in the immediate aftermath of segregation and Jim Crow and lack of women women's rights, that they were going to create the bridge of the original Starship, Starship Enterprise with an American and a Russian and a Black woman and an alien Vulcan species. And they were just all going to be equals on the bridge. <laughs> they were all going to be working together. And there was no explanation other than this is the future. And in the future, this is going to be how we're going to live. And so I think that the ability to tell stories about the future, the ability to dream about the future is very much a part of this narrative structure that we need in order to flex what I call in the book our cognitive capacities for hope. But I also think what you just said about having alternatives, like replacing something with something else. So just yesterday, I was up in New York recording the Ezra Klein show. And it was like really nerve wracking because he asks a lot of really hard questions. And one of the things that he said in that interview was a lot of people think that the only reason that the reason why the heterosexual nuclear family or, or whatever, even just the biparental model of a married couple raising their children is that raising children is so hard that the marriage is the glue that keeps people together while they're raising children. And so people think that it's necessary to have this sort of biparental married couple model in order to raise children into the world. Because even if you like add a third parent, an aloe parent, like Uncle Pete or whatever, like Uncle Pete could just take off because he's not stuck in the relationship the way that married people are. But of course, as Harriet just pointed out, we know that most marriages don't survive. So right. the fantasy that somehow marriage is the glue that, that that allows us to raise children, it might be that actually marriage is the thing that's making it so difficult, right? The fact that we're freighting our romantic relationships with these childcare and child rearing responsibilities that are very intense. And we know from evolutionary anthropology, there's very good evidence out there that we were cooperative breeders and that cooperative breeding preceded monogamy which means that we raised our children in what much wider networks of care and support with both consanguineous and non-consanguineous kin. And it was only later that we began to develop these particular marriage practices and mating practices around monogamy that allowed for the development of exclusive biparental care for biological offspring. But that model is not necessarily ideal for the world in which we live today. It might have been ideal at a particular moment in time, but it's no longer ideal. And we also know, contra to the opinions of people like Jordan Peterson, that our human ancestors, that humanity writ large, we are an incredibly flexible and creative and diverse species. And if there's anything that's natural to human Humanity, it's our ability to adapt to different circumstances. And so when we think about our family forms, when we think about the ways in which we organize our private lives, we have to be more capacious in our understanding of what the family could be, because that's part of the reason why we've survived as long as we have. I feel telling stories in fiction is really important. And they're very inspirational. Unfortunately, I write terrible fiction. And so where I can add to this conversation is through this sort of more intellectual history, this sort of genealogical approach to the value of utopian thinking, really going all the way back to the very early Buddhist Cenobitic monastics in the subcontinent and really thinking about the Pythagoreans who left mainland Greece and settled in what is now Southern Italy in a place called Croton and created this sort of commune where they shared property in common and where men and women were treated equally, where they raised their children together in order to study the mysteries of mathematics in the universe. So I think it's really inspiring to, for me personally, to realize that, look, there are, yes, there are these 20th century socialist ideals around the family but it turns out that those socialist ideals have this much, much deeper intellectual history that allows us to see that across cultures and in all sorts of different historical epochs, 
humanity has always maintained a commitment, even if it's only on the margins, for living our private lives in a very different way than the majority of people in the mainstream. And I think that's really inspiring and it's really important to remember. I also think that it's important for Americans to look at Native Americans who had other family arrangements. And there's a book called, a very short book called White Indians of North America, which goes into what happened when Native Americans captured the Puritan and other groups' children in order to compensate for the children that had been killed, because we did kill, honestly, 55 million Native Americans. And those children were brought up, and those women also were brought up in a Native American community. And when they went to rescue them, they wouldn't come home because they were treated with respect. Children were future members of the tribe. Women were as respected as men. And so that when they went to the big rescue, they were very disappointed that people refused to come home. So in our own history, albeit a repressed history of a people who genocidally murdered, there is evidence of very different family forms that worked. Yes. The indigenous scholar Kim Talbert, she writes about what she calls white settler sexuality and that there was a way in which white settler populations in both in North America, both in the United States and Canada, were very overbearing in their imposition of basically colonial family forms, white settler sexuality, the idea of particular roles for women, particular roles for children, patriarchal, patrilineal and patrilocal practices in the family, where property is owned and how it's passed from one generation to the other. The whole idea of this white settler sexuality was to get Native Americans to conform to what the white settlers believed was the quote unquote natural way to organize a family. But of course, it wasn't the natural way because they were just importing something that they thought to be natural, but it was very, very much a product of a specific culture and society and religion that was being moved from Europe to the Americas. And here, I also think that the best book on the importance of Native American cultures is The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David Wengrow, which came out a couple years ago. It's this fantastic look at how indigenous practices of radical egalitarianism may have actually ended up shaping the European Enlightenment. Like the idea, Enlightenment ideals might have actually traveled from West, from the Americas into Europe. And there's a lot of discussion in that book about the radical egalitarianism of Native American cultures and precisely this fact that when white settlers, for one reason or the other, ended up going to live among the Native Americans, they often did not want to return to their own societies. But the reverse almost never happened, which I think is really fascinating. Enslavement of women is tied to the transfer of proper, private property to one's own children, rather than shared property without ownership, that if you subscribe to Evelyn Reed and Engel's theory of why women are oppressed in the first place, they trace it back to private property and the ability to give to one's own DNA property and money and to perpetuate their ascendancy that way. You can really see it in the U.S. now where private property has gone mad and where, as in the 1980s, you could inherit $600,000 from your parents. Now it's $25 million. It's this sense of transferring property which actually prevents people from starting out on anything like equal footing. That's why I think one of the most interesting things being proposed right now is by the French economist Thomas Piketty, who yeah. has this idea of the minimum inheritance. He wants to give every child born like a minimum sort of state-funded inheritance of like 150,000 euro so that all, all children have 
a base from which they can launch their lives into what are vastly unequal societies. Now, he recognizes, of course, that some children are still going to get more. But through general taxation, this idea of a minimum inheritance is really going to chip away at a lot of this sort of intergenerational transfer of wealth and privilege, because it's not just about wealth and privilege, right? It's also about parental attention and affection. The children of the wealthy, they just get a lot more affective resources, not only from their parents, but also from hired nannies and au pairs and cooks and cleaners and all the other kind of staff that are often associated with wealthier families. Children are raised in a much more loving environment of multiple caring adults than poor children are, many of whom have maybe a single mother who is working full time and they're really struggling to balance work and life and give the kinds of affective affective resources to, to transfer the attention and affection and love that's necessary to raise a young child. So there's this incredible inequality in not only the transfer of resources in terms of money and material wealth and sort of privileges and access to certain kinds of social capital and cultural capital, but it's also really, I think, a transfer of affective resources as well that we don't talk about. There are a lot of children, I would say a lot of young people in our society today that are really starved for affection and attention and love and validation. And I think that when we see these sickness studies that have been done on loneliness, one would think that it's actually elderly people in the United States who are the most lonely. But study after study has shown that it's actually younger people that are the most isolated and the most despairing of that social isolation. And so there's a way in which the family form, as I said, that we've inherited you know, what Kim Tallbear calls this white settler sexuality, which is this particular model of the family around patrilineal and patrilocal practices, whereby you have a heterosexual, primarily heterosexual couple that is married, that does exclusive biparental care for their biological offspring in a single family home surrounded by their own stuff. That's the right. model that we think of as the ideal. That model is really crumbling and it's already crumbling. But what we haven't done is what I think Liam was trying to suggest in his comment is we haven't been able to offer a viable alternative. And part of that has to do with the resistance of, I think, conservatives in this country who like completely freak out when you try to talk about replacing the nuclear family. But it also comes, as I said earlier, from many of us who have a fear that if we shake up this model, we might all end up unloved and alone. And nobody wants to be unloved and alone. And so we stick with this particular vision of the family and the obligations that come with it, because if we try to expand our networks, our lateral relationships to increase the communities that give us support and love and affection and validation maybe they'll be less stable and then we'll just end up alone. That's why people stick with the status quo. And I think that we have to, as intellectuals, as scholars, as activists, as parents, as friends, as comrades, we have to present a positive vision of an alternative. We have to be out there saying, yes, these are ways of living in the world that have worked before, and they can work again. And humans are flexible and adaptable. And we could actually live much more joyous, thriving, connected, supported lives if we were willing to back away from this outdated family form, which just isn't serving our needs anymore. I think also we have to realize that whatever reforms are, I don't know whether you, it's Piketty or Piketty, whatever. I think that's a great idea of his, but I also know that in American society as it is, whatever reforms you try to make, the wealthy are not there. If their wealth is not perpetuated, they'll undo them. They're still working on undoing the whole New Deal now with the help of the Supreme Court. And Althusser had a theory which I think helps us understand, which is the family itself, as well as authoritarian families authoritarian religions and authoritarian education teach people the lines of dominance and submission and teach them 
to police themselves from the inside if they don't want to submit to the status quo, but rather to rebel, to create something else. And so we'd have to address that aspect of child rearing in an isolated family where you have to obey these people to survive. And you learn the lines of dominance and submission that you are to submit and then take that on the road that we have to help people see, which they can sometimes in revolutionary times, that that isn't necessary. That there are other authorities like your own thoughts and other people with whom you could create a better world. And how to do that is really important. I think in some ways, France is a model of that right now, where those four million people went out into the street to protest the pension change that would deprive people of the pension they counted on and postponed for a couple of years, particularly women who take some time out to raise children, even though France supports them from that. They're not, those years are not adding to their retirement. And so it's particularly painful for them. But that, I think, one reason they're able to do that is that they have excellent childcare of the kind Kristen, that you recommended, where mm-hmm. the care workers are paid like full teachers, and there's a master's degree and an assistant and somebody with an associate degree in every classroom and a pediatric nurse in all the daycares, and where you can have your child completely taken care of, 97% do, starting at three, and where before that you can put your child in daycare for a dollar an hour. And there's also after-school programs and summer programs that are economically feasible. So kids grow up with an aid cohort who they get to count on rather than just the authorities of whom they are afraid and who they have to watch and obey to survive. That groupness, which is another benefit of childcare, people seeing each other as a group, to count on. So I think that would also help getting the child care component that you so articulately advocate in place, as it isn't here. Yeah, I spent an entire chapter in the book really making the argument for a variety of different collective forms of child care with mm-hmm. the recognition that collective sleeping was a failure. From what we know, that, that that model didn't work out very well for the children. But everything up to collective sleeping, right? Like really thinking about children as being collectively raised by a group of people. You know, the on the one hand, there's the sort of socialist policy recommendation where the state should provide a kind of universal child care that is either subsidized very heavily or completely free. I think the Swedish model is a wonderful example I talk about in the book. I also talk about the French model, which I think has proven to be extremely successful. There are now really good empirical studies that show that children really thrive academically, socially, cognitively. One of the things that has been really interesting about the pandemic is that child psychologists are now able to see that children who were raised in isolation at home because of the lockdowns are quite significantly cognitively delayed compared to their cohort peers born earlier or later when the lockdowns weren't as severe. So we know that children thrive in an environment of lots of people, of lots of loving, caring adults. But one of the things that I want to say in the book is that as you mentioned, Harriet, in the United States, the possibility of a universal subsidized or free childcare is going to be a really big fight. So in the absence of that, there are still things that we could do in our own private lives. There are aldo parents that we could bring into our relationships when we have children. These could be godparents, These could be family friends, fictive kin. These could be grandmothers, aunts, uncles, cousins. These could be neighbors, colleagues, comrades. That 
we have a long history of cooperative breeding. And so even if the state is falling down on the job, which it is in the United States, we can still create these communities for our children. And I think that, again, the child psychological literature on this, the empirical studies that we have coming out of over 100 years of kibbutzim experiments in Israel, as well as now multi-generational studies around and longitudinal studies around childcare and outcomes in places like Sweden and Norway, countries where childcare has been around in a really serious subsidized state-level way for at least 20 or 30 years, we're seeing that it benefits mothers, it benefits children, it benefits society. I think, Liam, you wanted to jump in there on something. Yeah, just I guess it may be a way to tie up the hour. I just I really enjoyed your observation about that perhaps the reason people have nostalgia for their university years was because it was communal living before they got Mm -hmm. siloed off into their kind of individual lives. And that nostalgia for that time, to my mind, that's actually one of those points of persuasion. That's like <laughs> an alternative that you could, that I think lots of people would follow, which is that idea of living more communally, just being a sort of more joyful experience. Obviously, there's issues with privacy, and that is a topic. It's really interesting, like how you transition from a society that I guess was sold maybe the idea of privacy. Like on one hand, I think it's important. <laughs> there's a reason there's a lock on the bathroom door, right? You, yeah. <laughs> there's, an instinctive, there's an instinctive need for privacy, right? But it's like... And the bedroom door. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's like where those boundaries are, it's a whole other maybe conversation, but clearly with the, the loneliness epidemic, the communal living is like a really straightforward response to that. The blessing in the United States, they're expensive. With single people can get small apartments with a big communal area and meals served and so on. And when I was little, my grandmother was younger than her husband and he died and she took over his law practice and lived in the old cutted hotel where everybody had a little apartment, but there was a big dining room downstairs and they had housekeeping come and clean up your little apartment. And it was perfect for her. She lived there as a single woman for 30 years. And that kind of apartment for single people are often very expensive, but they're much sought after in San Francisco because people don't want to manage everything alone. It's too much. Exactly. And I think we do see this move to co-living and certainly Danish experiments around co-housing. I think Liam's point is a really well taken one, is that we need to find the appropriate balance between privacy and community. And Mm -hmm. we have been sold a particular ideal that privacy is something that we for which we should pay a premium. It is a status symbol. So when you have lots of money, you go out and you buy a really big house with lots of land around it and preferably a gate with a long driveway. And so nobody can come near your space. But in fact, in the face of this loneliness epidemic, but also in the face of the climate crisis, not everybody can have that kind of a mansion, right? Not everybody can have that kind of a dwelling if we're going to give that to everybody on the earth. So we need to find ways to live more sustainably, not to mention the fact that our appliances have 10-year planned obsolescence. And so we're just throwing refrigerators and washers and dryers and various things into landfill every 10 years because we're buying them and using them individually rather than using things more communally. But I think that, look, everybody, I'm a writer. I need a room of my own. A room of one's own is a really important thing. I like having a lock on the bathroom door. (laughs) (laughs) And I can certainly understand wanting to have my own sleeping space. But outside of your small kind of private space, which can exist within a larger communal house. Mm -hmm. I was up in upstate New York in January at the Oneida Mansion. And it was really interesting to see how this was like a big family of 300 people. They were group married. So all men, all women were married to each other and they raised their children in common. But they all still had very small private rooms to themselves. 
So that if you wanted to retreat and you wanted to go read or you wanted to sleep or you just wanted some privacy, you could have it. But then the rest of the community were these beautifully architecturally imagined communal spaces where there were there was a theater in the house. There were these wonder, there was a beautiful library. There were these big communal kitchen spaces. There were big communal areas to eat. What you were saying with the hotel, there have been these other models. Humans have lived in the past in longhouses. We have this long history of the kibbutzim in Israel. We know that we can and have for many millennia even lived communally. If we look at the history of Cenobitic monastics, either monks or nuns, the whole ideal of monastic living, of cloistered living, is communal living. The rule of St. Benedict in five, which was written in 530 AD, is precisely a document that explains how a group of people can live together in harmony. And we can look at Buddhist monastics, we could look at Hindu ashrams or Jains. We can look at all, all different sorts of ways of contemporary, for instance, eco-villages in Europe, places like Tamara in southern Portugal. You have places like intentional communities like Twin Oaks in rural Virginia. There are all of these pockets around our societies where people are living this other way. I like to think of them as like the other 1%. So we have the 1% of the economic elite yes. and we have the 1% of people who decide that they really, they're going to take their time and energy and resources and commit to living with a group of other people and they're going to prioritize community over privacy. Because even though society and capitalism tells us that privacy is a scarce good for which we should pay a premium, we know the downstream effects of that are loneliness and isolation and despair. The other one is abuse. People are more likely to be abused in isolated settings. Exactly. Not- and right. Listen. And we saw that during the pandemic, right? There was that what the UN women called the shadow pandemic of domestic violence when people were stuck at home. So yes, absolutely. There are all of these things. But again, we have to call out the deficiencies of our system today. We have to call out the problems of the family as we've imagined it. We have to denaturalize it. We have to fight against the Jordan Petersons of the world who want us to believe that this is a natural, inevitable way for us to organize our private lives. But to come back to what Liam said earlier, I think it's super important for us to provide alternatives, to be hopeful and positive and optimistic about the possibilities of living together in more connected and joyous ways of sharing our time and affection and resources with a greater number of people, which also means raising our children in common. And that doesn't mean we have to all run out and join communes with a hundred other people. It could just literally mean letting your kids spend more time with their their godparents or their grandparents or their aunts and uncles or their family friends, letting them have more sleepovers with school friends and making these lateral relationships much stronger so that we are not all isolated in our own little single family boxes, giving bi-parental care to our own biological children surrounded by our privately owned and hoarded stuff. I think that is a sick, it is, it is a pathological part of our society right now that we have to deal with. And you are giving a vision of something else is really important because on the one hand, we can point out Jordan Peterson's nervous breakdown. He doesn't seem very happy with the traditional life he's leading. But then we have to have an alternative. And the alternatives are something that you show us historically, which can extend into the present. And that's very important because people who say this has always been, no, it has. It's very important. And your book is hopeful. You have the sunrise on the cover, which is hopeful. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I think of the cover, at least the American cover, because the British cover is different. It's a sort of green eggs and ham motif, which at first I was, I love the sunrise and I definitely love the colors, the bright colors. But I also think that there's this idea of like the old Dr. Seuss green eggs and ham story, we resist. I will not eat it. I will not eat green eggs and ham. And at the end of that book, you realize that, you know what? They actually taste pretty good. Even if they're green. Right. So we resist change. We resist doing things differently. And it's understand again, psychologists 
just call this status quo bias. We have to recognize that in ourselves. But I do think that many of us stay in an unhappy relationship with the present because we're afraid of taking a step into the future. And one of the things that gives us courage to make those steps into the future is understanding this deeper history of alternatives. And that's what my book is trying to do. Massive thank you as always to our VIP patrons, Rebecca Johns, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, Alexander Lashley, Sheena Belmus, Seamus O'Connell, Alex Placito, Alexandra McCormick, Wig Shaker, Elizabeth McKechnie, J. Daniel Richer, Fontaine, Hartley Wilmoth, and Sean Venado. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in 